You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 802 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Friday evening. A little bit of a special edition late in the week podcast. And today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to builtbar.com, use the promo code locked on, and you'll get $10 off your next order. Uh, later on in the show, and uh, the vast majority of today's podcast, is an interview that I did with the great Ben Ladner of the Step Back and Read, React, Read and React podcast. Ben has uh, always been great on the podcast, and we really enjoy talking to him on today's show. Um, and we talked about the Eastern Conference, as you probably saw in the uh, podcast description. I sort of pl- previewed the playoffs on the uh, on the eve of it as things get underway on Monday. Before we get to that, though, a little bit of news on Friday afternoon that I want to touch on, and we'll hit on it again in a second with Ben. But um, I discussed the machinations for the non-bubble teams like the Hawks early last week, but there was some reporting uh, today that's new and interesting, so I wanted to talk about it. Uh, Asia Rojarowski first reported that the discussions for the eight teams not in Orlando, including the Hawks, of course, continue to center on the in-market workouts starting in September. And then moments later, Sham Sharania of The Athletic reported, quote, serious talks, end quote, between the NBA and the Players Association on an in-market program Again, sometime in September, and he laid out some of the details. It would, it would, I guess, reportedly include daily testing, which is not a surprise. And then one week of individual workouts, two weeks of group practices, and one hour of five-on-five scrimmaging per day. Now, again, those are rough um, estimates at this point in time. There's been nothing official announced, and obviously September is pretty soon. Obviously, we're here in mid-August, so there's been, there's some work to be done on this, but definitely the most tangible signs slash reporting of the Hawks doing something as a team in the near future. That's a very, very good thing if you are a Hawks fan. Obviously, trying to avoid the lengthy layoff that's going to be happening between games anyway. Again, as a reminder... Uh, there was plenty of reporting on this last week, and uh, all indications are, at least at this point in time, that's going to be voluntary. All of these team workouts will be voluntary, so guys are not mandated to show up. The player association is apparently not going to sign off on that, according to multiple reports. So keep that in mind. It's, uh, you know, obviously we'll see which players and what, what it looks like and what the coaches' situation looks like, but um, at least there is some optimism now that some in-market workouts will be happening and presumably they'll be happening over here at Emory right near where I am right now in Brookhaven so um, last thing on that news front this is a little bit earlier uh, in the week, but Henry Abbott of True, of True Hoop reported that Michelle Roberts, a player association uh, voice of sorts, um, is telling players that next season might not begin until sometime between late January and early March. And also there's some skepticism on her end about the viability of the current CBA, which could add a lot of variables in here. Obviously, December is the timeline that um, has been reported that the NBA is aiming for, but this is not the first time that I've seen a January to March kind of thing for the start of the season. And again, if you're the Hawks if your layoffs even longer because obviously if it gets into March you're talking about a full year between games potentially so uh, if you're a Hawks fan or if you're a fan of basketball obviously you want the season to start a little bit earlier but there's all kinds of health considerations logistics etc etc but that's the latest that I can tell you at this point in time on a Friday evening but uh, again to wrap it up the reporting from Shams and Woj is uh, the most encouraging if you are a Hawks fan it wants workouts to happen so we're hopefully getting a little bit closer to that and I will obviously keep you updated as that all comes about okay with all that out of the way here is my discussion with the great Ben Ladner after far too long of a hiatus 
Ben Ladner is here. Hello, Ben. How's it going, man? It's good to be back. Yeah, thanks for coming back. I looked this up before I uh, brought you in. It's been about 10 weeks since I made you come wow. on this podcast. Uh, and 10 weeks is basically infinity and the current landscape. Yeah. It's uh, a lot has changed and also nothing has changed in some respects. You are off the Hawks beat now officially as we are talking, uh, but you still watch basketball and I figured it'd be a good time to talk to, talk to you. So uh, first, is everything okay? How, how's life without the Hawks? It is. It's it's good. Um, you know, I don't know if my life is more or less stressful with or without the Hawks. Um, <laughs> I can't really, can't really come down on either side of that one, but it's funny you mentioned how long it's felt uh, how long it feels like it's been, uh, in some ways it almost feels like the last time we spoke was yesterday, you know, and it just, time sort of stands still during this, this moment in history when everything, with everything we have going on, it just feels like every day is the same. So, you know, moments of time take an eternity, but also just feel like they happen all at once. So it, either way, it's good to be back and, and talking basketball with you. Yeah, thanks for being here. And I was uh, on that final note about uh, time standing still. I, I've had to go to the office, so I've kind of known what day it is. But I've, I have multiple right. friends, and I'm sure I'm sure you're in the same. But I have multiple friends that uh, once the seating game started, people knew what day it was, and kind of before that, they didn't really know. So it was like it's kind of nice to have the seating games just to be like, hey, it's Tuesday, and this is the schedule today because they're actual games yeah. to talk about. <laughs> and even after it started, my thinking was almost like, well. Today is Christmas. Yesterday was Christmas. Tomorrow is Christmas because there was just <laughs> there was basketball on from I live on the East Coast. So it's one o'clock to basically midnight or eleven thirty almost every night. So even then the days kind of run together and feel the same. But I guess in a much more positive way than they had before. Sure. It's like summer league where there's just basketball all day, every day. Um, yes. Before I brought you in, I did uh, catch up on the news with regard to the latest on the non-bubble teams. And I wanted to ask you more broadly I know we talked about this uh, you know, a few months ago now. It's been a long time. But because nothing's really changed in terms of the Hawks, they're still in individual workouts and no team stuff. Uh, there's been sort of a I – don't, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a debate, but a, a discussion point about how much of an adverse effect this is. You know, If the Hawks are able to play some sort of team workout stuff in September, that'd be nice for them, of course. But in reality, uh, still no games until at least December and probably later than that, if you believe the latest reporting – what do you think about how it affects not I mean not, not just the Hawks I mean it applies to the Hawks but these eight teams that have not been playing so far yeah I mean certainly it'll be good to be able to get in the gym and get reps uh presumably with your teammates and if nothing else just work on your game and and stay sharp during the offseason as you would in a normal summer if you can do that with your teammates all the better if you can do that against live competition even better you know you and I I think both sort of came down on the side of it was better not to include the Hawks and teams like them in the bubble, just because of the additional risk that you introduce when you, you know, basically the more teams that you add in hindsight, I think there is a stronger case for the, the worst teams in the league being in the bubble because we've seen how well it's gone, yep. but we've also seen how much work it's taken to, to pull that off. And, you know, if you add eight teams, you're almost adding in addition to an, an exponential increase in risk, like an exponential increase in the amount of work that it takes to mitigate that risk. And so, um, you know, whether it's still worth it or still the right move to try to create a bubble with these extra eight teams, I'm still not sure that's the right decision. But I do like that at the very least they can get in the gym and get working. And we've seen what kind of dividends that can pay, whether it's a team like the Suns, um, you know, the, even the Wizards, like some of these young teams that are getting reps in the bubble, regardless of whether they're winning or losing, just being able to play meaningful games against NBA competition at this time of year when the rest of the league is also moving. I think is a really valuable thing. And so 
I could see this sort of stunting the growth of the Hawks and the Warriors and Knicks and all these teams that that weren't included in the bubble, the Delete Eight. But um, you know, it, it, we're in such a weird time where you almost have to have to put organizational development as a secondary concern to basically public health and public safety when you're when you're trying to pull something off like a bubble or opening gyms or anything that's going to get large groups of people in the same place. Yeah, and it, you know, it looks like they're going to be some something in September. Nothing official as the time of this recording, but. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how, how even that looks. We got some reporting today, but nothing like super definitive. And obviously, uh, all the buzz is that it's going to be voluntary, not mandatory. So you talk about you know who's going to come and all that stuff, and we'll cover that as we get going here. But I figured it was the news of the day, so I have to ask you about it. Okay, um, now though, the uh, the reason I begged you to come on is to talk about the Eastern Conference playoffs. Now that's kind of scary because the first round, as we'll get to, is not exactly appetizing in terms of uh, when compared to the West, but uh, it gives us an opportunity to kind of breeze through these series a little bit and then maybe look ahead to the future, and uh, I appreciate you doing that with me. So before we do anything else, let's get into the two series that no one wants to talk about and get, and get them out of the way. Uh, first of all, you have the Bucks and the Magic, the uh, the 1-8 series. Uh, the Bucks, by the way, currently at the moment on Bet Online are 100-1 to 1 favorites. Not That's not that's not a misstatement by me, 100-1 to 1 favorites. Is that good? Uh, I think that's probably a good indication of how interesting this series is. But, I mean, more broadly, since the series, we all kind of agree, I think, that it's going to be uh, a pretty short series, most likely. But uh, what do you think about Milwaukee in the bubble? Because they didn't, they weren't fantastic. They showed some of the weaknesses that people thought they might show. They also flashed some of their strengths as well. Uh, where are you at on the Bucks at the moment? Uh, not just because of the, uh, the Magic series, that's going to probably be a short one, but more broadly than that. Yeah, I think I'm at the same point that I was entering the bubble, and frankly, the same point I was this time, or I guess not this time, but you know, mid-April of last year, even though I picked the Raptors to make the finals last year, just this idea that the Bucks are the overwhelming statistical favorite, and so it takes a really strong argument to convince me that they aren't still the favorite to make the finals out of the East. Like There are ways that Milwaukee could falter, and they, there are weaknesses that could be exploited, but if you're saying that a team is going to you know, push on those weak spots enough to, over the course of seven games, win four of those games. I don't know that I see a, an overwhelming argument for any team, whether it's Boston, Toronto, uh, Philly, Miami, whoever you like in the East. Indiana, I should throw them in there. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that the Bucks are weak enough to really be taken advantage of over the course of a four-game series. So it, it's possible, and I feel less optimistic about them than maybe I did heading into the playoffs. Um, but I still don't see that team in the East that's that's like, oh, this team is primed to beat Milwaukee and they can really take advantage of what few weak points Milwaukee does have. Um, as for the first round playoff series against the Magic, like <laughs> I would make I would make the Bucks in six joke, but I don't even think it's going to take that long. Um, I, I think this is probably four or five games. You know, the, the Giannis Aaron Gordon matchup could be interesting, but without Jonathan Isaac, I think that becomes a lot less interesting anyway. And there's no conceivable path for me to see Orlando taking, you know, so much as two games off the Bucks in this series, especially because I, I feel like all of Orlando's strengths sort of coincide with Bucks' strengths as well. So the things that Orlando is good at, you know, almost don't even translate against a team like the Bucks, who are so fundamentally sound on defense and on offense and defense and active on defense and just rangy and versatile. Like th this is not going to be a challenge for the Bucks. And I, I expect them to do what they did to Detroit last year and just sort of roll through this 
and use it almost as a way to sharpen up for when the competition really stiffens up. Yeah, I mean, some of their metrics in the bubble were not great, but a lot of that was they, they didn't care a whole lot. Even when they were playing guys, they were playing guys half their minutes or not really having any incentive to play. It's, it's difficult, and they were clearly rounding into form. Um, and they're also pretty healthy, all things considered, compared to some other teams. They are they have some they have some hiccups along the way, but everybody's around anyway. And Orlando, especially without Isaac and uh, Mobamba, went home today. That's kind of been a little bit scary, actually, post COVID. And I hope I hope the best for Mobamba. I hope he's going to be fine um, health wise in the future. But both those guys not being there, I don't know. The Magic don't ever impressed me much anyway I mean there were they've done a good job in terms of uh, getting the most out of what they have with Steve Clifford but not going to be uh, threatening to Milwaukee I will ask you a final question about this uh, in terms of Milwaukee right now and maybe we'll come back to them later but do you worry about Mike Budenholzer and the adjustment narrative because it, it sort of reared its head even in the seeding games like you saw Bud's going to do what Bud does, and I, I do hope that he makes some adjustments at some point along the way, but it, my my current point, just to get it out there, was I understand why it was being discussed when he wasn't making adjustments in the seeding games, but at the same time, he has no incentive in the seeding games to actually make adjustments and show them off to anybody else, which is why I wasn't any more worried than I was before, but that, that obviously that, that discussion point's been out there since he was a coach of the Hawks, so uh, are, you worried about, if you, are you worried at all about Bud like not doing what he needs to do in the playoffs? Maybe a little bit. Um, you know, I don't think it's a fatal flaw for Milwaukee necessarily, especially because I don't see that team in the East like Toronto was last year, where it's like, you know, this this is really, if things are clicking, this this really is a viable threat to the Bucks. You know, I think I don't see a team that is, you know, on their level in the same way that Toronto was last year. So, you know, some of the the adjustments that Toronto made that sparked their turnaround last season and just the talent they had and, and the, the factors that allowed them to come back and win that series don't concern me because I'm not sure there's a team in the East this year that can that can pull that same sort of thing off. As far as the adjustments in the seeding games, that doesn't worry me at all because these are seeding games and Milwaukee has very little incentive to care. Um, what does concern me maybe, maybe a little bit is you know going up 2-0 against Toronto and then losing in six last year. It's not making adjustments against Cleveland in 2015 and 16 when he was back in Atlanta. You know, I think Bud is a coach that trusts his system and rightfully so because he's built one of the best systems and just sort of um, offensive and defensive in infrastructures in the entire NBA. Like the Bucks have such a strong and sturdy and dependable, consistent uh, scheme and system on both ends of the floor that they have no reason to want to deviate from it. Uh, and I think there is merit to the idea that if you just stick with what you're good at, if you stay true to your your principles and your scheme and, and the, your philosophies that guide you, that eventually the results will bear out in your favor. The issue is that in the playoffs over the course of a series, there isn't always time for those results to sort of regress to the mean. So, you know, maybe if if Milwaukee and Toronto last season had played an 11 game series, the Bucks win six of them and they go on to the finals. But you only have seven games. And so. If you do need to make an adjustment, if you fall behind early, if you feel like, hey, maybe maybe we won't have time to figure this out organically, you do need to adjust. And Bud has not shown to be that kind of coach over the course of his NBA career. It's just, you know, he, he's justified in, in not being that way. But I do think it's a little bit of a weak point because the playoffs just demand a certain level of creativity and flexibility and ability to um, sort of adapt on the fly that I'm not sure Milwaukee has. And, and maybe they do have it. And if, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they get into a situation where they have to change their scheme and they, they ex execute it su successfully. 
Um, but I, they, that's never been their DNA. They're not a team that, that like Toronto, wants to be creative and wants to show you different looks. They just want to dominate doing what they do well. And if that's not working, it, they haven't established that plan B that I think a lot of people are looking for. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, the one thing that he can do very easily, I hope, is just play Giannis more. Um, I heard, I can't remember which podcast I was listening to recently, but the discussion point about, you know, these guys not traveling at all and not having to do much of anything other than play basketball every two days, um, maybe that actually opens things up for medical staffs and coaching staffs to be willing to play their guys a little bit more. Like, we've seen Damian Lillard play entire halves. Granted, their season was on the line, but you know, once you get to a certain point, season's always on the line in the playoffs. And I'm not saying yeah. that Giannis has to, has to play 45 minutes a night, but uh, what's one of the big things that I've knocked Bud for in the playoffs is just not playing Giannis especially, and then even Middleton and other guys enough. And he's just a regular season coach. I mean, he's really good at it. Um, he, he's just not proven it. And I'm, I'm not someone who buries Bud in terms of being uh, doomed to be a bad playoff coach forever, but the uh, the data we have is not always great. It helps that he has the best team, though, and I think that he still has the best team, and that is uh, probably the most important thing. Yeah, and I think another important thing to recognize is that it takes a really special team to be able to force Milwaukee into an adjustment. And I think last year the Raptors were that team. You know, they're just aesthetically they're one of my favorite teams of all time. But I think you know you look at what they had, and I think objectively, just from a production and quality standpoint, they are one of the best teams we've seen in the last decade or so. Um, so there is a certain amount of credit that is owed to, to Coach Bud's opponents, whether it's Cleveland or Toronto or whoever. Like, it takes a lot to really force Milwaukee into that predicament. It's just, if they run into that team, do they have that next gear that comes with the adaptability and the flexibility and everything we mentioned? We will see. Uh, we talked about Toronto. Let's just breeze through this real fast because the, the Raptors play the Nets. Uh, granted, Toronto is actually a much smaller favorite <laughs> relatively than Milwaukee. But there's game still... one Raptors, man. I was going to say, they always lose game one. That's, that was actually on my list of notes. Uh, the Raptors <laughs> always lose game one, so maybe they'll do that. And by the way, credit to the Nets. Um, they've, they're still the worst team in the playoffs by a lot in terms of talent. But credit to them, credit to Jacques Vaughn for putting together a really competitive unit. And that Blazers game was fun the other night just talking about like they had no business being in that game and they were because they were playing really hard and uh, obviously Karis yeah. Levert's really talented Joe Harris uh Jared Allen etc etc so I'm not trying to crap on the Nets the Nets have done a really good job with that said uh they're not beating the Raptors I don't think so uh we could talk about the Raptors more Bradley I know you mentioned them last year the def- de- defensively they're still awesome like they were the best defense in the bubble by a wide margin they weren't as good as, as Milwaukee in a regular season but uh, there's a lot to like about Toronto especially because of Nick Nurse and all the guys that they have that are just rock solid is the best way I can describe them yeah they really don't have a weak point on defense and that's not just in their starting lineup but you go up and down their rotation like Matt Thomas is really the only guy shouts and to Matt maybe, Thomas yeah <laughs> I mean, high-end shooter Matt Thomas that's all exactly he can do, but... a valuable player in his own right but that's you know that side of the floor is not his strength. But when you have that many great defenders, you can sort of cover for that. Um, not that Matt Thomas is like central to the Raptors' hopes of winning a <laughs> title or anything. but Says you, Ben. Says you. Yeah, you never know. Um, but no, they do have that that just, I think, collective instinct on defense is the best way to put it. Like every individual player is just so smart and so instinctive. And you you combine all of that together. You know, you almost don't even have to tell them what defense to play. You just have to say, stop the other team, and they'll find a way to do it. Uh, and it seems like they do that in a variety of ways, you know, more than any other team. And I, I think they have a chance to continue being the best defense in the NBA. Like you mentioned, they were the best in the bubble. I think they have a shot to be the best defense in the playoffs. 
because they can just play so many different looks. They have they have great defenders at every position. They have just the functionality, like every role that you need filled on defense. They have someone for it. Um, so I, I really buy into what they can be on that end of the floor. I think the question for them has always been, can they score against the East best yep. uh, best teams? And you know, even the West best teams, if they get that far, I'm not sure they have that guy. You know, we saw Kawhi last season just be that undeniable force in isolation and pick and roll, just getting to his spots, rising up and hitting tough shots. You know, Siakam has taken a leap this season, and I, I think deservedly will be an All NBA selection, if not or a, a candidate, if not a selection. But is he that level of offensive creator where he can just he can produce something out of thin air that keeps your offense afloat when you run into the Bucks, who are just taking away everything at the rim and forcing you into pull-up jumpers? Can you get the shots that you want, or at least shots that you're okay with, against an elite defense? I'm not really sure that's the case against Toronto. Uh, you know, teams will be much more, um, much much more attentive, I think, to getting back on defense against their transition attack. That's a big part of their offense is just finding those easy points in the open court. It's funny because because they move the ball really well. I think they have the prettiest offense in the NBA. They have good shooters, and I, I think for the most part they generate quality looks. And yet you look at their half court offense, and it's in the teens, and you you sort of wonder what the disconnect is there. And I'm still not really sure what that is. Maybe there's a, a certain amount of luck that's about to swing back their way, or maybe that's just what they are, and they don't quite have the juice in the half court off the dribble. Um, it, it remains to be seen. I think if they if they provide a convincing answer to that that question of whether they can score, and, and it, the answer is yes, to me they are as big a threat to win the championship as they were last season. You know, they're that good on defense, and if they can just find a way to score, I think they're just about as good a team, and they're not going to be facing a super team in the finals. So. They're one of those teams that I think is is has some high upside. It's just not clear how realistic it is that they reach that upside. Yeah, people think of upside usually on offense, I feel. And defensively, like Toronto's not a team that you might uh, envision as an upside team, but I tend to agree with you because the defense is always going to be awesome and, mm-hmm. really ad- and really adaptable and uh, functional, and they're so well coached. But I agree. I mean, the, the question is obviously with them is can they score? And it's not like they don't have any talent, but, you know, there's there's a there's a gap even with Siakam taking a lead. There's a gap between him and the top creators on the other contenders. There there just is. And also, you know, while they have they have no defensive holes, and that's a big part of their success, they do have spots where offensively, not that they have giant like zeros, but there are some lineups when they're when they're playing you know two or three guys that are not huge offensive threats to create. Now, not that, not that they're bad, but like Serge Ibaka is like not a great offensive player at this point. He's fine. Yeah. He's not going to kill you. Same with Marcus Like Marcus has good matchups. He's a great passer for a center, etc. But he's not he's not this elite offensive player anymore. Um, so you know it's interesting to me. We'll see. They can score enough against most teams. I feel like, but. Even in the bubble, and this is a really small sample size, they were not great on offense in the bubble. Even though they were seven and one, it was mostly defense. And granted, that's going to sustain. But can they score on the Bucks? I don't think so. And we'll talk about that more later on. But uh, yeah, we'll tease that out. But uh, we'll come back to that. I think in a second. Uh, ben, before we move on to the other two series that would be probably more competitive in the first round, a, a word from the good folks at Built Bar. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever, and the new and improved Built Bar is even more delicious. I've told you in the past how much I really love the original Built Bar flavors, but now there are up to 18 
amazing flavors to choose from, including six new selections like caramel, brownie, lemon, almond, cheesecake, and a personal favorite of mine with cookies and cream. Each bar is covered in 100% chocolate, and importantly, they are all soft and easy to chew from there. It is absolutely crucial to note that Built Bars are fantastic for those of us that are trying to be health conscious. You can, you can maintain or even lose weight while still enjoying a delicious treat. Bars are low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber, and Built Bar is even great for the keto diet. Right now, Built Bar is even offering a free cooler with every purchase while supplies last, and you can find everything that you need to do at BuiltBar.com. Again, go to BuiltBar.com right now. Use the promo code LOCKEDON, and when you do that, you'll get $10 off on your next order. One more time, that is BuiltBar.com, promo code LOCKEDON. For $10 off your next order, check it out at BuiltBar.com. All right, Ben, we're back. Uh, Dealer's choice. Do you want to do Heat Pacers first or Celtic Sisters first? Ooh. Uh, Let's hit Celtic Sixers. Okay. That's my very that's my very best Zach Lowe impression. He always does that to guess and just says, "All right, you choose." Uh, so this series would have been a lot more interesting if Ben Simmons was healthy. I'll say that uh, off the top. That would yeah. have been the series that everyone was circling probably in the East um, before this came out as, as far as a first round matchup. That's unfortunate, and because he is not going to play, Boston is a pretty big favorite. They're actually minus four fifty, and what I saw earlier, I bet online, that's a pretty significant favorite, and not a lot of love for the Sixers. Obviously, everyone's discussed the Sixers as, as a sleeper team. It's just hard to see them making a big run without Simmons. Um, and Boston actually played really well for the most part in the bubble. But uh, I mean, other than the Simmons injury, what what do you make of this series? Because Boston's a team I can't really figure out, if I'm being honest. I can't figure out how how seriously to take them as a team to make the finals. Um, they're they're definitely good, uh, and and they and they should be the favorite in the series by a pretty significant margin, in my opinion. But how far they take, I mean, sorry, how, how far they can go is kind of something I can't really uh, parse in my head right now. I agree with you, and I can't quite put my finger on why, but it just feels like every time I watch Boston, uh, it feels like something is not is not there that should be and maybe it's just that they run their offense a little bit differently than conventional nba title teams do so maybe they're just as capable they just do it a little bit differently but i tend to think that there's just something um something a little flat about especially on offense uh, is kind of where my my main concern is it's just there's something flat about what they do maybe it's that they're susceptible to dry spells and just uh, not being able to reach their peak capacity at, on a consistent basis but um you know, as soon as I figure out what that is, I'll let you know. But it's been hard to sort of uh, to say what because they've been a good offense. They had a top five offense in the regular season. Like you said, they were really good in the bubble. You see all these these versatile ball handlers and passers that they have on the wing. And it just feels like that should all lock into place in a really nice way. And sometimes it's just like there's this disconnect that I can't quite um, you know articulate what it is. As for the Sixers series, in my head, every time I go through this series and, and do the matchups and the things to watch and yada yada. I always, I always think of it as though Simmons is playing. And then I always come to the realization that, Oh no, actually he's, he's injured and he's going to miss it, which is a real bummer every yep. time. Uh, Cause I, I like him as a player and I think he makes us a lot more competitive. Um, it's still interesting. You know, it's, it's uh Philly's still a good team. They still have potentially the best player in any given playoff series in the Eastern conference in Joel Embiid. They have, I think Al Horford still has something left in the tank, despite what, um, most of the numbers said about Al Horford this year. It's just that I, I wonder with Simmons going out so soon before the start of the playoffs, do they have time to just figure out how to play without him? And it's not so much just taking Simmons out of the lineup. What do you do now? I think it's more just, okay, 
the, the people that are going to replace Simmons, how do they fit with the, the other core pieces of the team? Like, do those guys have time to just learn one another's games and find the chemistry and, and the balance that they need to play productive playoff basketball? And I just, I feel like they, they might've just run out of time. And I think that's been the story of Philly season all year. It's just not really settling soon enough on, or I guess just figuring out soon enough what their best lineup looks like. And then as soon as they find it, a key piece of that lineup goes out and now they have to sort of scramble to find a replacement when there really is no replacement for a player like Ben Simmons for better or for worse. It's just, he's such a unique player that you're going to necessarily have to reorganize the way you play offense and defense. And that recalibration is not something that comes easy. I wouldn't imagine. And so they might just not have enough time. You you can't take three playoff games to figure that out. And Boston is the kind of team that I think is disciplined enough and smart enough that if they jump on you, you know, they can, they can find your weak points and, and find them quickly and just take advantage. And I could easily see the series going, you know, Boston goes up 2-0 before Philly can really even find its footing. Yeah, if Philly had been fortunate enough to stumble into a series against Indiana or maybe even Miami, I might give them more of a puncher's chance. I don't really see it against Boston, even with uh, some of the weirdest that I have with the Celtics. They're, they're the more talented team without Ben Simmons. Um and provided they're healthy and they look, they look to be healthy at this point in time. I mean, a B could take it over. Like you mentioned, um, you know, that's Boston's probably weakest, weakest point. I, I will say Daniel Tice has been good this year and he is a good player, but Embiid could cook in the series and, and win a game or two by himself. Almost with that said, I don't know. I mean, they just don't have enough creation Philly. I mean, that's not a new question. I'm not breaking any ground there, but like I'm a Josh Richardson fan and he's been not great this year kind of on the whole that's a guy they need they would desperately need to be like awesome in this series to have a really a puncher's chance on both ends of the floor because he's gonna have to guard a serious option on the other end of the floor as well I don't know I mean I like a lot of what Philly has still I think Al Horford to your point is not like washed up it's just not he's not the greatest situation in the world again in Philly especially when Simmons is playing ironically but it's a I don't know. I have a hard time seeing this series even going seven. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but if Boston just does what they should do in this series, I guess Tatum would be the swing point. If he's if he's the guy he's been in the second half of the season, Boston's very clearly the better team here. I just don't. I, I'm not sure about that because he's still a young guy who's been up and down at times. With that said, I, I just don't trust Philly. I mean, no no one trusts Philly at this point, and they shouldn't. Um, there's still a team in there that's that's pretty scary, especially defensively. But even then, like Simmons unlocks a lot of that stuff. So I'm trying not to just bury the Sixers because I want a series to be fun, but I'm not sure this is going to be it. Yeah, there's just so many cascading effects of not having Simmons. And um, you know, one of them, I think, is you mentioned Tyson and, and potentially Embiid's ability to just go off in one of these games. I think, to, to me, if I'm Boston, I'm sending a double team at Joel Embiid no matter what. So it really doesn't yeah. matter who his primary defender is as long as he's not just going to get you know, sealed inside and for, for an immediate layup. So I think one of the problems, though, is that without Simmons, Boston can send that help more liberally, and Philly just doesn't have a creator who can offset those double teams and sort of be that counterbalance to Embiid on offense. You know, you mentioned Richardson, who can... He's run the offense, you know, in bits and pieces for the Sixers this year, but he hasn't been great at it. He's much more of a, a you know, catch-and-quick attack type of guy. Same with Tobias Harris, more of a catch-and-shoot um, kind of work to his spots in the mid-range type of guy. They don't really have that dynamic creator who can really capitalize on the advantage that comes when opponents double-team and bead in the post. And so does their offense uh, does their offense stagnate and, and sort of stall out as a result of that? 
And then the other thing is on the defensive end, I think one of the great things Simmons gives you is just the ability to toggle the matchups however you want on defense because he can guard anyone. So if you feel more comfortable with Josh Richardson on Jalen Brown than Jason Tatum, well, then great. Ben Simmons can guard Jason Tatum. Uh, and you can you know, stick Matisse Thibel on someone else, and you, you just have all these options. And now it kind of forces everyone up a peg and leaves your safety net even a little bit thinner. Um, so I, I just think without that sort of omnipositional Swiss Army knife of a defender, it's going to force Philly into some more specific defensive matchups, and I think that could leave them a little more vulnerable when you go down the hierarchy you know, of how the, the individual players match up. And eventually Boston's going to be able to find a matchup advantage and take advantage. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and double teaming Embiid is a no-brainer in this series, um, especially because, you know, Philly has some shooting if they want to put it out there. Like, they have guys like Korkmaz they can go to. But in general, there's not a lot of guys you're terrified of as floor spacers. And Embiid um, can pass, certainly, but that's not his number one uh, asset either. So, yeah, I just think that there's uh, Philly's pretty easy to guard at the moment for a team that uh, is a pretty good defensive team in Boston. They're not great defensively, but certainly good enough to hang with Philly. And then I think they're going to score on them too. Um, Just the fact that, you know, I know Philly still has good defensive talent, but on the perimeter especially, I'm not sure that they have enough. Because, you know, Boston, for all of my skepticism about them, at least, I mean, that's the wrong word, for all of my hesitance about them, they've still got four guys who can create offense on the perimeter. And then a fifth and Marcus Smart, who is not shy. Um, They have some, they really have a lot of ways to, attack offensively and especially when they're running good sets like Stevens in the way that you mentioned earlier that they run some interesting stuff that nobody else uh, runs consistently I don't know they're they're kind of difficult to guard I know Philly has length but again without Simmons uh, that um that real that real strength that they have is kind of mitigated yeah yeah I'm with you I think Boston's just the better two-way team and so even if the 76ers find an advantage on one end of the floor at least sort of uh you know, get on equal footing on one end, I think Boston still has the upper hand on the other end of the floor. I got to say, I, I would love to see Joel Embiid, like, just completely go off. Because uh, he's a guy that you might, I think you said it earlier, people mentioned this, and I agree. Like, Embiid's ceiling is top five player in the league or higher. Like, he's yeah. that good when he's got it going. I would love, I would love it just for entertainment as a basketball observer if he just decided, you know what, I'm going to take this series over. And they still might not win, but it, it would be it would suddenly be a lot more interesting if he just came out and dominated the first two or three games and uh, sent a bit of a message that he wasn't going to just go down with a fight. So that'd be fun. Uh, that's the only way this gets interesting, in my opinion. <laughs> so uh, sign me so up too. for that. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's go to the last one for now, uh, and that's Heat Pacers. Again, a series that has uh, injury concerns on the Indiana side. Uh, I know TJ Warren went off uh, in the seeding games, but... Old Depot does not does not like look like he's all the way back just yet, and then of course no Sabonis for Indiana, and also earlier today Derek Jones Jr. for Miami got um it looks like a, a, a potentially serious injury, kind of a scary injury. Hope, hope 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 I hope the best for Derek Jones Jr. Um, but I don't know Miami's kind of owned Indiana this year. Indiana has uh I think probably more of a chance because I have less faith in Miami than I do in Boston, for instance. But at the same time, Miami is a substantial betting favorite because they're just probably the better team. And uh, given the neutral floor aspect here, not a whole lot of value in Indiana on my end. Yeah, yeah, I think Indiana's just too banged up to really... um, I mean, they could make it a series, but getting past Miami in the first round, especially because I really liked what I saw from Miami in the bubble. I don't have their numbers right in front of me, but just from watching them, I think their offense looked 
somewhat sustainable. Like I, I like what they were doing on that end of the floor. And I actually think their defensive upside is higher than they showed in the regular season. I think they can Agreed. put together some lineups that are um, that are pretty nasty, especially with Bam Adebayo at center. And they they emphasize that look a lot more in the bubble. I don't even know if Myers Leonard played a minute, uh, at least not a meaningful one. Yeah, and they the they, they surprised they surprised by coming out in game one of the seeding games and be like, all yeah. right, Myers, no more you. And I actually think Myers Leonard is not bad. I think Myers Leonard yeah. is actually a rotation level player. But to, I mean, I can't argue with going ahead and just going with Bam at center. That's obviously their best look in most series. And that also applies to this series. So go ahead and do it. Yeah. Yeah. I just think Miami has more places to attack in this series. You, you can just point to more, uh, more matchups, more tactical, uh, tactical schemes, just ways that they can score weak points. They can push at than Indiana does uh, without Sabonis, who was such an important hub of that Indiana offense from the high post in the DHO game you know, passing to backdoor cutters, things like that. Just you could facilitate through him, um, which really made guys like Brogdon, Victor Oladipo, even Aaron Holiday, TJ Warren, more, uh, you know, more versatile, more of a weapon because they could work off of him and work without the ball. So you take away that that pretty central cog of the offense, and I'm just not sure uh, how effective it is. And can you really bank on TJ Warren being bubble TJ Warren in every playoff game? <laughs> I'm not sure. He yeah, didn't look that probably, way probably not. Uh, he's good. Right. Make no mistake. He's good. He's good. by the way, and that's. I actually feel bad about this because TJ Warren was really good this season before the bubble. People kind yeah. of didn't understand that and acted like he was the guy from Phoenix that suddenly became a dominant star in the bubble. And that you know he was already having his best year of his career by a long shot. Like he was really good this year for Indiana. He wasn't as good as he was in the seeding games, but he was a really good. I mean, he's really good. The problem is. If Oladipo's not Oladipo in capital letters, I mean the yep. two best players in the series are on Miami, and that's yes. that's not a good that's not a good situation to be in. Uh, obviously, I, I I think that Warren and maybe Oladipo are capable of exploding for a game or two to level the playing field a little bit. But if you're power ranking the series in terms of the best players, number one and number two in some order is Jimmy and Bam, and also Miami has the better coach. I think Nate McMillan did a pretty good job this year, but I would take Spolster in that matchup, uh, especially in the playoff series. So. I'm not. I mean, I, I'm not trying to pile in Indiana. I'm really not. Who had a? They actually had a nice year. They were better than I thought, thought they were going to be this year. But you know, no Sabonis, injury stuff, weirdness, depth. Like, they don't have a ton of depth either that I love. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm not. I'm actually not in love with Miami in the way that some others are. I'm not. I'm a little bit skeptical of them. But the matchup that I like for them probably um, the the most possible was Indiana. So I have to take Miami pretty comfortably. I completely agree, and I just think. They have more looks too than Indiana. Like, um, you know, the, the Pacers, I feel like, are not as adaptable or as flexible on either end of the floor as the Heat are. And I think they just have a little bit more, kind of like we talked about with the Raptors, just more adaptability. They can they can show you more looks. Uh, one of the sort of tangential questions I have relating to that that I'm going to be watching for is what's Miami's best five? Like, who do they close games with? I almost think they they should go without a point guard and just play. You know, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo are kind of obvious locks. And then Duncan Robinson, Andre Iguodala, and Jay Crowder might be the best three guys to to work around them because they're, they're in this weird place where they have so many options and they all bring sort of different things to the table. But when your two best players are almost complete non-shooters, it sort of increases the importance of having a guy like Duncan Robinson. It almost makes him a necessity. And then, you know, you have to balance that out with some perimeter defense. So they're, they're sort of always... Um, 
you know, they're always sort of trying to balance out one weakness of the lineup with a strength at a different position and just trying to find the best aggregate lineup, if that makes any sense. Uh, and I'm not sure what that is for them yet. I think that's something I still have to figure out. It's sort of a blessing to have so many good options, but almost a curse in other ways to not know what your best option is. And so uh, I think they can use this first round in a lot of ways. Not that it, they shouldn't be focused on winning the actual games, but I think to just figure that out and, and help clarify what their best five is when the you know the, the stakes are the highest. Yeah, that's interesting. I I I agree with you that it makes a lot of sense to just surround Jimmy and because you know Jimmy's gonna have the ball in his hands most of the time in crunch time. Yeah. Um, so having him on the floor and not having anyone small to pick on, you got to have Duncan for floor spacing. Um, I, I can I can sort of see that. The only other guy that I would argue on behalf of is maybe you go to Dragic if he is at full strength. Right. I've never been the I've never been the biggest Dragic guy, at least in Miami. Like once he he had the one awesome season in Phoenix, but I don't know. Dragic is someone that I think you can probably pick on. But when he's got it going, he's pretty he's still pretty impressive when he's got when he's got it going. I, 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 and they might need another creator because the lineup that you laid out there. Iguodala and Crowder at this point are not creating anything for you on offense. They're they're out there to play yeah. defense and Crowder and maybe make an open shot. And Robinson's gravity is huge. And yes, Bam can create a little bit or more than a little bit from a center's perspective. But they, they might want in some matchups somebody else that can handle the ball a little bit other than Jimmy. Because right now, if you use that lineup, it's going to be a lot of Jimmy, and it probably will be anyway. So that's why it makes sense. But uh, that's an interesting question, and I'm not sure that they'll uh, have to roll out and make that decision in the in the end of series, but it would be probably good for their clarity to decide at least roughly what a couple of their best options are, if not, if not just one. Yeah, and I think you laid it out well. There's really not a perfect option here because everyone's going to come with their downsides. Uh, I just think the more I think about it, like the more essential Duncan Robinson really is to their offense. He's huge, and man. I, I, I mean, almost... that, that guy is going to be... Uh, I love him, obviously, Michigan guy. But he, you know, the comp that everyone should make to what he did this year as Kyle Korver 2015 yeah. like and the, the 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 skepticism about about that is that Kyle was still effective in the playoffs he got hurt of course but the big question with Duncan is like is this going to translate because there's a long history of role players um fading a little bit especially when when guys like I mean maybe not in first series when uh, they don't have a ton of options to throw at him but eventually teams are going to scheme him in the way that they are not in the regular season. And uh, whether he could pass that test is like the next barrier for him because, man, he was really good this year. <laughs> really good. He was awesome. He's become such a good decision maker. Like he knows – he comes around that that pin down or a DHO or whatever it is, and he, he immediately knows whether he needs to pass, shoot, fake, cut back door. Like whatever the right decision is, he's almost always making it. And even at a higher rate than he did in the regular season or at the start of the season – um, I thought he looked great in the bubble. Yep. It's uh, he, he, his gravity is 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 just huge, and um, you know he he's so essential to have on the floor. I do wonder if if he's going to be taken away a little bit, and then where does Miami go after that? Because he is kind of a liability on defense, and and you do need him to be that that magnet that he that he's been on offense to to sort of make up for that. I think he actually could hold up defensively. The one the one thing about Duncan is that he is quite long. Like he's not strong and he's not athletic, but he is very long. Like it's kind of the same thing as Kyle Korver, actually. 
Corver is like yeah. underrated, underrated, huge, like six seven and like two thirty of like large man. He's not quick, but he was always a little bit underrated defensively. I think Duncan's not terrible. Um, whether he gets picked uh, in a playoff series, whether he can hold up with something different entirely, though, that's the big question. Is like it changes in that setting, especially yeah. at the highest highest level. So we'll see. And I mean, I, you know, Miami does have other options. I mentioned Dragic before. They do have Tyler Hero too. I'm a little bit lower on, but he had some nice moments in the bubble as well, and he's got a lot of uh, creation upside. Kendrick Nunn, I probably wouldn't play, but um, they they can get, they can get away with uh, a lot because Jimmy can handle the ball. And I don't know, Miami's interesting. I, I wish they were uh, probably given more of a challenge in the first round, but th- they'll get one later on. I promise. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, before we get to the uh, the rest quickly, that well, I'll ask you about what your sort of predictions slash feelings are. What's the longest series in the first round? Is it going to be Celtic Sixers or Heat Ooh. Pacers? Which which one goes longer? Oh man, um, or, or is or is, it, or is it going to be a draw? <laughs> yeah, it could be. I mean, full strength. I think Celtics Sixers is the clear answer here. Like that, that might be a seven gamer if everyone's healthy on both sides. Oh yeah, but, agreed. I mean, but, it, but it, they're not possible. Ben. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's possible the Sixers don't experience a huge drop off without Simmons. Like, just because of his specific limitations, like it is possible that their offense looks a little bit better. Uh, that they kind of find a way to play without him. But I still think that's unlikely. I think he makes them a better team uh, pretty clearly. So I would go Miami-Indiana just because there's that possibility that Oladipo could could look like Oladipo, which you know we don't know if he will. But Brogdon could have a big game. Miles Turner can have a big game. Like TJ Warren could be bubble TJ Warren for a couple games. Like those options are in play. Um, for Philly, I just – I think once Boston figures out what exactly to do with Embiid, it's going to be pretty clear how to shut down the rest of that machine. Whereas Indiana, I think, might just be a little more unpredictable, and so maybe it takes Miami another game to adjust and figure out what to do. But either way, I think there's... If either series goes long, I think it'll be uh, not full of close games. Like I don't think it'll be a a close, Mm. long series, if that makes any sense. Um, I, I think by the end, one team will have figured out the other pretty handily. Yeah, I'm having a hard time, you know, my normal brain would say, look, there's no way that Indiana or Philly isn't going to get one at home, but now they're not going home. So it's like, you know, could these be sweeps? Like, I wouldn't predict that, but certainly that could happen. Uh, I think my default would be both of these series ending in six, but I think it's more likely that that, um, Boston ends Philly in five or less. Than it, than it does for Miami ending Indiana. I don't know. They're pretty close. Uh, unfortunately, I would not predict any of the four series in the East to go seven games. I hope it happens just for our viewing um, pleasure. But yeah. Um, okay, I want to ask you briefly. We won't. Go, we will not go as long. But uh, obviously, round two, if things hold the way that we are anticipating that they will go, you get Bucks Heat. And then uh, the series that everyone is circling in the East, I think, in the second round would be, uh, of course, Boston and Toronto. Uh, quickly, can Miami scare Milwaukee? Because my opinion is no, but maybe you disagree with me. Potentially. I mean, we saw them play them close for about a half in, in the bubble. Uh, I think they played them pretty well in the regular season. I could be wrong about that. If Bam is, is peak Bam on defense and can really be a deterrent for Giannis Antetokounmpo... Perhaps, uh, you know, I think those those Bam at center lineups could be difficult for Milwaukee's defense to deal with. Uh, that said, Milwaukee's defense hasn't had much trouble dealing with anything this year. So 
it's it's possible that there's not really a look in the East that really scares them on that end of the floor. You know, defensively, like I said, I think Miami has higher upside than they've shown so far, and and maybe they find a way to sort of uh, you know sort of stick a, a stick in the spoke of the the wheel, so to speak, for Milwaukee's offense and slow them down. I just think when you have arguably the best player in the world uh, in Giannis Antetokounmpo, when you have Chris Middleton, a guy who can create his own shot and, and be your just you know a great second option on offense when when the defense tilts too far toward perhaps the most overwhelming downhill force in the history of basketball. Like that's a pretty hard thing to reckon with, even when you do have Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo. Ultimately, I, the lack of shooting Miami has, I think, could hurt them. If if Milwaukee can devote more attention to Duncan Robinson, they're so smart about how to help off of non-shooters that they can afford to force the ball out of Robinson's hands and then not pay too hefty of a price at other places on the floor. So it's possible that Miami scares them. There's a formula. There's a path. I could see it conceivably happening, but I, I would not anticipate that being the case. Yeah, I can't. I have nothing to add to that. Well done. Um, <laughs> on the other side uh, is the real. I think the closest thing to a toss-up that I have seen projected in the East, and that's again Celtics Raptors. Um, I don't know. It's that's interesting to me on a number of levels. Uh, can can Boston score on Toronto? Is a question. Can Toronto score on Boston is a question, uh, and this yep. is the this is the one that uh, honestly of every series that's possible in the East, this is the only one that I have no like firm pick on. I would not bet on either side. It is a pretty clear toss up to me. I mean, I guess I might lean Toronto because I, I value their defense and their uh, sort of veteran know how and Nick Nurse. But on the other side, I mean, Boston might have more talent. They have a good coach too. It's pretty pretty tight. Yeah, I think I agree with you. You know, you you ask like if you look at just who over the course of seven games is going to be able to take the most punches and respond with counter punches of their own. I think it's Toronto. Like they're just so smart, they're so versatile. Everything we talked about in the the preview of the Nets series, like all of that applies throughout the playoffs. Um, I think I thought Ben Falk of Cleaning the Glass wrote a great article last year. Um, referring to, to David Epstein's book, Range, just about the difference between wicked and kind environments where one is sort of predictable and repetitive and you can get immediate feedback and the other you have to sort of work off the fly and and figure it out as you go. And I think that latter category is much more in the spirit of what NBA playoff basketball is like. And that's that's much more, you know, sort of consistent with the characteristics of Toronto's roster. Like they just have a lot of players who are good at figuring things out on the fly making quick adjustments, uh, not having to practice something before they implement it, uh, and, and just executing different kinds of schemes, you know, maybe from possession to possession, uh, let alone game to game, at, at a really high level. And so in a playoff series, if you're saying this is a, a toss-up, you know, what's the tiebreaker? You try to look at these different things that could swing it one way or the other. That's kind of the thing I look at for Toronto, where maybe I don't trust their offense to score on Boston on paper, and maybe the regular season matchups have indicated that Toronto could have a tough time scoring on Boston. But if you're asking me by the end of that series, which team is more likely to figure out how to score on the other and to make that adjustment and to find that breakthrough, I think the answer is Toronto. And so when it is such a close series, and you can see formulas for either team, you can see ways that that one team could, could exploit the other and, and vice versa, uh, I think those little advantages could could be kind of the, the factors that tip it. And so for that reason, I would lean Toronto slightly, but 
it's it's just such a, a fascinating series that really I don't think can be I don't think there's a clear answer here. And I think I go back and forth on a pretty consistent basis myself. And I think it's impossible to come to a consensus of which of those two teams is uh, is the greater threat against one another. Yeah, I think uh, other than the Clippers, maybe there's no team in the league better suited to guard Boston than Toronto. Toronto just has all of these perimeter defenders ranging from Lowry and Van Vliet in the backcourt to obviously OG Anobi and Siakam and Terrence Davis and Norm Powell, who's okay at least. And it's pretty good. At least he's like average defensively. They have so many bodies on the perimeter and obviously Boston is a very perimeter based offensive team. They just have waves to throw at them. Uh, You know, you, you could definitely talk me into Tatum being the best offensive player in the series, and I'm not like a huge Tatum guy, but he's I think he has the highest upside offensively in that series, which might yep. scare you a little bit if you are a Raptors supporter. But I don't know. It's it's pretty tight. It's one of the series where I would pick the home team if they actually had home court advantage, but because it doesn't it doesn't exist, uh, just don't bet on the series. I mean, my uh, my only uh, advice would be not to bet on the series. Yeah, <laughs> it's worth noting too that uh, the Celtics while they're lower in the standings than Toronto, actually have a higher net rating on the season and were, the, in, in many metrics, the better regular season team. And so I think that just makes it even more complicated where yeah. it's like Good luck. Toronto had the better record. In, you can make a, a strong case that they're the better team. You can point to a lot of evidence. And yet there's also this really strong evidence that actually the Celtics are the better team despite the, the records in the win and loss columns. It, it's just a really hard series to predict. One other point I'd make about Toronto's defense, I agree with you, they might be the best team suited to guard the Celtics in the league, even better than Milwaukee, which I think is actually part of the reason why Toronto could have the best playoff defense, just because they can adapt in that way. But the other thing is you look at even guys like Mark Gasol, Serge Ibaka, who you would think might not be great matchups for the Celtics. They're so smart and they're so good and the rest of the team is so good at helping that even if they don't have a great individual matchup, you look at it and say, oh, well, Jalen Brown can attack whoever off the dribble like they still find ways to to get stops and to bother their opponent and and to to shut those matchups down like even if they look like they're at a physical disadvantage that mental edge that they have and and I don't I don't even mean like their competitiveness literally just their their intelligence on the court I think makes up for so much for what few uh you know holes like physical deficiencies they actually have it's just a you go through and it really is an enigma as far as figuring out how to score on this Toronto defense. Yeah. Big time. Um, I don't know. That, that'd, that'd be a fun one. I want to see it. I definitely want to watch it and all the changes that would happen in the middle of that series. And yeah, let's yeah, sign me up for that one. Uh, last thing before I let you get out of here. Um, I asked this question to Robbie Callen before the seating games and I'll ask you to you now, what, what percentage of the time in your mind does Milwaukee make the finals? Make the finals. Um, Make the finals. Win the East. Same question, but yeah. Probably, I would say 70%, but because it's the playoffs, because, um, you know, we've seen where number one seeds who look like overwhelming favorites can be challenged and in some cases even defeated, I'll lower it to 60. Like, I still think that they win the majority of the simulations if you're running it out however many times, but uh, Toronto wins in a lot of those hypothetical scenarios. Boston wins in a few of them. Uh, the Sixers, you know, there's always like the the one in ten chance that the Sixers actually put it together and make the finals. <laughs> Finally, even though it looks, in- yeah. yeah, exactly. You, you can never really count that out, even though it looks increasingly less likely. Um, so I, I'd say probably sixty to sixty five. 
Yeah, but, we're in the same range there, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I'm yeah. Probably, I might be a little bit higher than you, especially now that I, I'm kind of disregarding Philly, and they would, that would have been a team that I would have given a yeah. couple of those to. Um, my yeah. follow-up question would be, and I think I know the answer based on what you've said so far, but there's two schools of thought in terms of who has the best chance to beat uh, Milwaukee in the East. And there's the, obviously we talked about Toronto earlier and the fact that Toronto has beaten them before and their defense and all that stuff. And then there's a school of thought with Boston as this like off dribble shooting team, uh, perimeter based team that might be a bad matchup for Milwaukee to try to guard. Um, which of those do you think gives more, gives Milwaukee more fits if they meet in the conference finals? Well, first of all, I think that's the right way to frame it. Like Toronto is the team that can slow down Milwaukee's offense and yep. Boston is the team that could score against Milwaukee's defense. Yep. Um, so, you know, I'm not really sure which one is, is more valuable. I tend to think that Toronto's defense translates, you know, like you said, I, I trust in their defense a little bit more. I think that yeah. tends to be a little more sustainable. Like, I, I definitely I trust it. Toronto's defense more than any other unit um, on any yes. other team in the, in, in the East anyway. I mean, take Milwaukee out of it. I mean, I, Toronto's defense is the number one unit in the East. That's not, yeah. that's not Milwaukee for sure, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, you make the case for Boston. If, if you laid it out, it would be, well, you know, they have Hayward, Tatum, Brown, Kemba Walker are all guys who can shoot off the dribble. You know, yep. they're all capable pull-up shooters. Um, but none of you know, none of them are Steph Curry, none of them are Dame Willard, none of them are Kevin Durant, none of them are these. I mean, Kemba's close in a lot of ways, but uh, none of these are are like unbelievable pull up shooters who you just like have proven throughout their career to be these these dominant forces. And and they could be that for a short amount of time. But if you're saying what's the likelihood of Boston punishing Milwaukee's drop defense with pull up threes, which is to me kind of the only way to beat Milwaukee because you can't really get to the rim on them. You, you can't get high-efficiency shots. You're not going to get to the foul line. So you've got to make pull-up threes because their guards are so good chasing over the top and you know recovering. Like You're not going to get a lot of catch-and-shoot threes. You've you got to be able to – I guess you are going to get a lot of catch-and-shoot threes. I shouldn't say that. But <laughs> um, if, you're, like, if you're saying what's more likely, Boston turning into this you know insane off-the-dribble three-point shooting team or Toronto being this impenetrable defense, I think the latter is more likely. I almost know for a fact that Toronto will be will be viable on defense and will be really solid. Whereas I think with Boston, it's it's a little bit more of a well, if things go right, this could happen for their offense. So I don't I don't think it's as much of a certainty in that sense. Yeah, I think we're on the same page, and uh, there there's a chance. You know, people like you and me will will love that series, but there's a chance that uh, there'll be some casual fan uh, slash sports pundit takes about how ugly a a Bucks Raptors series is this year. It already had some of that last year, but at least you had Kawhi uh, and all that stuff. Um, it might be a rock fight every night, as much as you can have a rock fight in today's NBA. Uh, those two defenses might just uh, eat each other alive in terms of. Uh, I'm not sure there'll yeah. be a lot of uh, potent offense in a Bucks Raptors series, which I I would enjoy watching, but I'm not sure everybody else would. I would too, um, but I think I think there's a difference between a rock fight and like uh, a, a well executed defensive fight. You know what I mean? Like I, it's I, I like, agree with you, but like Skip Bayless does not. If that makes sense, you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's almost like a, a pitcher throwing an unbelievable game versus just the opponent's hitters not being able to hit anything. You know, yeah. like one is the, the defense is actually doing its job and doing really well versus like, oh, neither of these teams can score. Like, the it looks terrible. What's even going on? I would actually enjoy a, a tactical defensive battle between Milwaukee and Toronto. Like, I think that'd be really exciting. 
Um, it's just like you said, how many people actually will notice that that's what's going on versus, oh, neither of these teams can hit a shot. You know, I think that's yep. kind of the more obvious thing that you can see. Whereas I think in that particular matchup, it would be more a case of just both of these defenses are so good that it's it's a miracle that anyone's getting off a clean shot, let alone making it. Um, but that is that is kind of uh, you have to be a little bit more devoted uh, to the game to to appreciate that kind of thing, I will admit. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, all right, Ben. Well, you've given me way too much time, as always. Uh, I know you're not covering the Hawks anymore, but do you have anything to plug? I know you have your own podcast. I saw you wrote something this week that you could plug. Anything you want to share with people? Yeah, I've been doing a little bit more writing for the Step Back recently. Uh, now that I, I don't have a specific team to focus on, I can sort of widen the lens to the rest of the league. Uh, I wrote about the Rockets' defense, which uh, I know we, we were on the East today, but I think that's one of the most fascinating storylines in the Western Conference like the, the Rockets have, are playing the most progressive, radical offense yep. in NBA history. And yet, I think it's their defense that really stood out in the bubble. And I, the question for them is, can they get the stops? Can they get the rebounds? Because they play so small. And the answer they gave in the bubble is is yes. And it's it you know maybe they won't be able to do that consistently, but they showed the formula. And their activity in the passing lanes, on the ball, taking charges, all that kind of thing, just compensating for a lack of size, to me is really fascinating and I think could be a little bit of a wild card in the playoffs if, if they really find a way to make that work. Uh, like you mentioned, read and react NBA podcast. Uh, it's, it's anywhere you find podcasts, you can find that it's, it's basically the kinds of discussions you and I've had today, except it, it sort of, uh, you know, focuses on the entire league as opposed to the Hawks. Although I guess we did look at the entire league today. So we did today. Uh, if you like well, half, the league. Today, half the league anyway, you can get a lot more of that on, on read and react if you want to. Um, like I said, anywhere you find podcasts and, uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be podcasting and writing periodically throughout the playoffs. So uh, if you want to keep up, it's at bladner underscore on Twitter. But I don't spend that much time on Twitter, so that may not be the best place to. I, I was going to say you, you tweet like once a week, um, but other than that, I mean, you're st- you, it's still good to follow you because if you ever write something or post a podcast, you usually put it on Twitter. So yes, yes, it's either that or it's or it's a very niche comment on a very specific part of some middling NBA teams pick and roll coverage. Like those those are usually the two genres of social media content that I produce. <laughs> well, follow Ben's stuff, subscribe to Ben's podcast, read Ben on the step back. And uh, thanks again, man, for doing this. I will, uh, I would say probably uh, frequently bother you to talk about various things in the future, but uh, thanks for coming back after this uh, never ending break because uh, time does not move anymore. Happy to do it, man. Thanks for having me. As for everybody else, enjoy your weekend. Please subscribe, and we will see you next time.